And now maybe anything we have to say will be uh, heard. We've uh, arrived at a new quarter and a new topic of study. You've survived um, a visit of Ecclesiastes, which was very helpful and very good. The tone has to change somewhat because of the nature of our, our study this, this quarter. We had the benefit of kind of a relaxed pace to be able to visit Ecclesiastes and really uh, consider it carefully. Uh, Jeremiah, maybe the pace will be somewhat different, and so you'll forgive me if it sometimes it seems a bit of a push. And even uh, even right here at this moment, to just to push to get into the text as quickly as possible. I uh, Misty Delk mentioned that the reading schedules, of which there was a stack uh, ten minutes ago on the back ledge. Um, that stack has uh, disappeared, and there are more copies being made. So if you didn't happen to pick one of those up, you're probably already behind, but I have confidence that you can be uh, caught back up by uh, next week, um, and we'll be ready as we come together with, these, with, this, with this text. I will not be able to pause and prompt you in the uh, wonderful way that Alan did. However, there's a lot of wisdom collected in this room. We greatly appreciate anything you would have to say um, during class, after class, whatever that might be. would really, uh, really appreciate that, so speak up. Our mic managers uh, always do a very good job and um, get their step count in. <laughs> Jeremiah. Let's do a very, very brief introduction. In terms of all of the themes in Jeremiah, what I'm intending to do is let most of those surface naturally as we go through it, partly just in an effort to uh, begin <laughs> and to, ma uh, to make some progress because these things surface very quickly. And will be, uh, you know, permeate throughout the, the text. However, I do want to go to one theme, or you might call it two. I'll call it one with two parts. In terms of themes of Jeremiah, one that is, will really be a cornerstone of our reading together. And that's this. As we read God's words through Jeremiah, what he will have to say to the, uh, to the people is, and through Jeremiah, is that they have not listened to me. But a time will come when they will know me. Let's see what we mean when we're saying these things, and let's see um, how these things begin to populate through the text of Jeremiah. They have not listened to me. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 19. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it also. And as a result of this, what you find is, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22, 
He says, my people are foolish. They know me not. How did they get to this place? They know him not because they had not listened to him. And very bluntly, he will say, they're stupid children. They have no understanding. They're shrewd to do evil, but to do good, they know not. And they do not know how to do good, nor do they know the Lord. Now, you may say right off the bat, well, that's not unique to Jeremiah. And so, you, Jonathan, you're saying this, this is the theme of Jeremiah. That's not really unique, and it's certainly nothing new um, from anything we've ever considered before. And I'll say, right, <laughs> absolutely right. It is, this is absolutely a very common theme as we, uh, among people who are familiar with the prophets. They've not listened to me, God will say. And I, but I would say further, even though you'd say this is, it's not unique, how can this be the theme? I would say there's, there's something very significant in this, I think, because if God, in all his words to all his peoples at all times, is consistently saying, you're not listening to me. In fact, you're to the point where you don't even know me then I would say there's something very emphatic and very sobering being said about God's people probably of any time, in any time. It's being said that it could be found that there are people who are not listening to the Lord. And may we all heed this warning. More about that to come. And then there's this statement, and this um, as the, perhaps the second part of the theme. They will know me. And as you read that, you may think that that is, may sound like a, um, a blessing. And certainly it would be, and, and it is. You may think it sounds like a, a thinly veiled threat. Because it God, God at other times will say, they will know me. But the mechanism that brought that about was uh, very, very unpleasant. They will know me. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 15 and 16. Speaking of David, did, you, did not your father David do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. Is, the, is not that what it means to know me? But they're not like this whatsoever. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 3. They proceed from evil to evil. And they do not know me, declares the Lord. God's purpose is to cause them to know him. I expect to lean very, uh, very heavily on this idea, uh, partly because the text uh, emphasizes very heavily this idea. In Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. And they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. It's going to give them a heart to know him. We will see in that a contemporary manifestation of that during the times of Jeremiah. God's people would come to have a better knowledge of him because of Jeremiah's work. And then uh, you can't miss... 
even in what we just read there from Jeremiah 24, a messianic uh, manifestation of all of these things. God is pointing ahead to a time where all of God's people will know him. There, you, can't, you won't find any who don't, because that's just the nature of who God's people are under the new covenant and at the time of the Messiah. They've not listened to me, but they will know me. In coming to know God, specifically, God has in mind to, to, to show some very specific things about himself. God intends to show what I'll call his essential character, the essential character of God. As stated throughout Scripture, it's, it permeates your Scriptures, although it may be, uh, um, well, it could be easily uh, overlooked. But it was stated during God's earliest uh, interactions with the nation of Israel. As they become a nation coming out of Exodus, so in Exodus chapter 20, actually embedded in the Ten Commandments. God reveals something about him, his essential character, we're saying. And then what we'll read now from Exodus chapter 34, in revealing himself to Moses, God reveals himself in a very specific way, revealing some things about himself. And, and what he does in this is that he tells Moses who his, what his name is. And his name, in fact, reveals what his character is. And this is the character that would then be known to all of God's people who truly know him. And the psalmists and the prophets were very impressed by this. And as they address God and speak to God, they address him on these bases. God will say to Moses, he says, I cannot show you my glory, though that's what Moses had asked. Do you remember this? But he said, what I will do is, I will pass by and proclaim my name before you. So, it wasn't that uh, God, it, Moses needed to see God's glory. What Moses needed to hear was who God is. That, uh, according to God himself, was more important. And here's how God does that. Listen to Exodus 34 and find a highlighter or a pen or something and make this, uh, dog ear a page, make this a very significant passage to you. I'd, I'd encourage you. And we certainly will during our, our uh, time together in this in Jeremiah. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations... Moses made haste to bow down in worship. But what you see there is God revealing who he really is to Moses and what Moses really needed to know about God and what any people who want to know God need to know about God. And, and so it is these things, if we uh, want to summarize that, that he is, um, if we distill it 
down to God's perhaps two-part um, character, that he is the one who is slow to anger. And this is abundantly, abundantly manifest in all of his words to his people. He's the one who's slow to anger and who forgives in showing mercy. On the other hand, he is the God who is just and who always does what is right. And what that means is that there's punishment for sin because he cannot tolerate sin. And he'll punish with wrath, it says. This is how God um, revealed himself and all who truly know God know him in this way. And, and this two-part character you'll see is, is, comes, perfectly, comes perfectly in harmony. There's a third thing hidden in this, um, I won't say hidden, but obscured in the words. And that is this idea, that he is the one who promises to keep his covenants. And that's really the emphasis of this word, loving kindness. And I think Dan Duggan, I can give credit to for kind of pointing this out and showing that this really does point to God's keeping of covenants. And you see that somewhat in those words, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. And Exodus 20 will add the words to the, on, for those who love him. And you can um, gather then also that the ones who are punished and he will visit their sin and iniquity, that's on those who hate him. This is the core and therefore you might say the essence of the way God describes and reveals himself. And so we're calling it the essential character of God. I expect to say uh, a great deal more about this. <clears throat> and now to Jeremiah chapter 1, where we still are in this kind of an introduction. And Jeremiah provides a, a context and the kind of the historical foundation of what's um, of, of the time and the nature of the environment he was in. And because we know our history fairly well, most of us, we will gather that when he is speaking in the times of Josiah, but then also Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, we know the shape of the nation that he was speaking to. And... That will inform what he has to say. I just realized before we get to chapter 1, just a couple more words by way of just introduction and, and thinking through the kind of text we should expect to read. Jeremiah may read like the familiar refrain that you remember from Deuteronomy chapter 5. What he says in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 29 is God speaking of his people. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. And this is God's great desire. And that will be, again, abundantly manifest. One other thing to look for in the text, there's a great emphasis on the fact that what we read is the word of God. The word of God came to Jeremiah. And some maybe 50 times across the book, there's the emphasis on the word of God. And then if you add all of the occasions where there's a statement and then Jeremiah finishes by saying, such and so declares the Lord, 
I just, as I read this, it was overwhelming. And so just because some people like numbers, some over 150 times declares the Lord. What is the perhaps emphasis there? It's that God's word demands respect and attention. In our Hebrews class on uh, Sunday mornings that we've launched into, Mr. Phil helped me uh, see a, a connection that is that's, um, well satisfying since we're always studying Hebrews and Jeremiah at the same time. And so a rather, uh, rather plain uh, comparison there. Hebrews, the beginning of that, in the beginning, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, and so that's including in the time of Jeremiah, in many times, in many, in many ways, um, has in these last days, of course, spoken to us by his son. God spoke. The, this, the emphasis in that doesn't get borne out as plainly until we come to Hebrews chapter 12. And what you find in Hebrews chapter 12 is, God has spoken. In verse 25, see to it, he says, on the basis of the fact that it's God speaking, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And so that's a, a very pointed way of saying, don't ignore, don't refuse, don't reject. Heed and, and, and listen, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those, who did, uh, if those did not escape when they refused him who spoke from uh, or warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And so there's again already an application for us. And we see they did not escape. They refused the one who was speaking. But the very plain uh, instruction from God was that when he speaks... See to it that you do not refuse. They failed. Um, what, will, what will be the case for us? Will we do any better? Let's read this with the ears that want to hear and hearts that want to seek God in this. I needed to say that before we turn to the text. So now, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, very uh, likely very familiar setting, these are the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. You'll see that he is not like the other priests of his day. Priests of Anathoth. So evidently this is a hometown. It will, become, it will come up again. It is a place where Jeremiah will purchase property at a time when nobody was purchasing property in this town by the instruction of God as a sign for the people in the land of Benjamin. The words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. And you might have some expectations if you're um, hearing the word of God during the days of uh, maybe one of our very best, king, we acknowledge as one of the very best kings, you might have some expectations of what the Word of God might be, and um, right or wrong, uh, not maybe what we would hope. And then in verse 3, it also came in the days of Jehoiakim, following him, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until, so this spans a period, until the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. 
it's the end. Jeremiah speaking at the end. And there was one glimmer of hope as Josiah tried to make reforms uh, in his own house and then among the, all the people. Come back to that in a minute. Um, and then from there on out, no good thing could be seen, right? So it's after the period of the captivity of Israel to Assyria. That's very significant and will become especially significant in chapter uh, 3. And Judah had seen this firsthand, right? These are your neighbors. Violent men have come and dragged your neighbors away. <laughs> Did you pay attention to the news? Did you see what happened? It's uh, the period of the last kings of Judah through, the, through to the time of the overthrow of Jerusalem and then the carrying away in captivity after the destruction of the temple. That's all we'll say about that for the moment. But Jer Jeremiah's earliest proclamations and statements reveal that even though Josiah is king and has a heart for God and a heart for reform, specifically for removing idolatry, as you very well know, the people, the people haven't amended their ways. The idolatry that was very open has, has become seeded in their hearts, and this hasn't been weeded out, and they haven't, haven't changed, but maybe it's possible we're getting ahead of ourselves. Jeremiah and his message. In verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me, he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. Uh, Jeremiah will be a prophet to the nations. The majority of his message will be directed, of course, at Ju to, to Judah, God's unfaithful bride, the rebellious house, the rebellious city. But he will have a great deal to say about the other surrounding nations, those wicked nations around, showing that God rules in the affairs of men and will visit the iniquity of all nations upon them because of his essential character. And um, so he will, he will be a prophet, it says, appointed over the nations. His reaction to this is very familiar <laughs> For anybody who's had an appointment by God, right? In verse 6, then he said, oh, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. This was his objection to it. And certainly he did, you would say, have a, a tall task. Jeremiah understood the gravity of what God is already beginning to say to him in his task. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't feel inadequate for this? Many of God's specially selected messengers express the same things, right? Right. He seems to be worried about his speaking abilities. He says, I, do, I, do, I, don't, I don't know how to speak. You're, you're telling me I will be speaking and, and carrying your word. He says, I don't know how to speak. I... I'll begin to make a suggestion that I think it's unnecessary for him to have this concern. Unnecessary, in fact, for anyone who would tell God's word to other people. 
And this is, you can see, from God's response to him in verses 7 and 8 and later. But the Lord said to me, so here's his reply. Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. And then he says, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Is there cause for concern that he is a youth and isn't particularly good at speaking? <laughs> we can sympathize with it, but no real cause for concern, I would say. Here's, here are um, three reasons that I would say that we find in here. Not to object, not to resist when God has said, here's something you need to say. Because God is the one who appointed and commissioned or commanded you. In verses one, or, or verse, verse 7, said, Everywhere I send you, you shall go. And everything I tell you, you, will, you shall speak. He will then say, uh, well, then we then find that we don't have the burden of what is it that I need to say. That's not, it's not our task to determine that. God gave Jeremiah the words. It's God's words through Jeremiah. And uh, no less true for us. All that I command you, you shall speak. First Peter 4, verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as it, as it were the oracles, the utterances, like the actual words of God. Let anyone who uh, wants to try to convey God's message in whoever is appointed. And then, uh, finally, from verse 8, there's no need to fear because God is with you. And in fact, he commands him not to fear, as he will always command his people, don't fear. I am with you. And he um, promises to deliver, deliver him. So there's no place for fear. God emphasizes this and maybe even amplifies this promise. Come down to verse 17 and hear what he says further. Now, there, now gird up your loins and arise. Speak to them all which I have commanded you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. Here's another reason uh, not to be afraid. So God, um, anyway. And then in verse 18. Now, behold, I have made you today as a fortified city. This is kind of an impermeable thing, right? A, a fortified city as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land. To the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. So there's, he can expect resistance. But God has provided him with equipment. Verse 19, they will fight against you. But they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And so for the second time, he promises to deliver him. And so, three reasons for anyone who has God's message. God, God gave us this task. We don't have to worry about what the message needs to be. It's, it's fairly plain. And God has promised to be with us. And so... Jeremiah has, is now appointed and will need to go and carry his message. Verse 9, then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. 
See, I have appointed you, again, uh, you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is a fairly good summary of the scope of Jeremiah's message, that he would be telling them that God intends to pluck up, to destroy, completely overthrow. And at the same time, God has in mind, in the proper context also, to build and to plant. Um, but quite a contrast found in these statements. That's, um, and, and, and it's that way all throughout the prophets. In one breath, God is promising destruction and outright obliteration of people who have rejected him. And then in the very next breath, it's, God, it's the God of mercy who can't leave the guilty unpunished but intends to show mercy. It's amazing. It's, 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 it's utterly amazing. But these words point to God's purpose and it points to God's character. In terms of God's purpose, what you see is that he needs to convey the idea that the worthless city or the worthless vine is going to be plucked up, uprooted, tear it up. Why does it use up the ground, as Jesus would say? And in chapter 2, verse 21, I planted you as a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the denigrate shoots of a foreign vine? It's a worthless vine. It's one that goes astray. It's not producing anything good. And it's going to be up, uprooted and plucked up. The rebellious city is going to be overthrown. And on the other hand, a remnant is going to be replanted. And um, I will give you no rules about what passages of Jeremiah you can and cannot visit in your comments. And so we visit directly and quickly in uh, chapter 31 and verse 4. The one of the cornerstones of Jeremiah and the, maybe even the, well, the climax, you might say. Jeremiah 31, verse 4, Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth. Again, you shall plant vineyards, verse 5, on the hills of Samaria. The planters shall plant and enjoy them. And God intends to replant a remnant and a future chosen people will be uh, rebuilt. In, turn maybe no more than one page back in chapter 30, verse 18. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places because of who he is. And the city shall be rebuilt on its ruins and the palace shall stand on its rightful place. And all of this, in the tone of all of this, you will hear an underlying messianic aim in all of these things. So God's purpose, to pluck up, but to replant. To just utterly destroy, but then uh, build again with a remnant. And it points to God's character, as we had just said before. And so briefly, what we'll say again, from the outset and continue to emphasize this, he cannot leave the guilty unpunished. And so do you see that in these words? What words do you see there that sounds like he's punishing the guilty? And then toward the end of that, I know you see words that will 
show that he is ready to forgive, eager to show compassion and to restore. Now in verse 11, God begins to show him some things. First of all, it's this almond tree. The word of the Lord came to me saying, uh, what do you see, Jeremiah? And one of the best ways of getting people to see is to show them something. And so he said, well, I see the, the rod of an almond tree. And then as a, you almost hear a non sequitur to your English ears. And then the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. What does an almond rod have to do with God watching over his word? Maybe you have some ideas. Maybe you'd like to suggest those right now. There's a mic ready. Turn it on. You already mentioned the, the double meaning there as well. Um, almonds, I don't think, show up often in Scripture, but that is the type of rod that Aaron's rod was made out of. If you recall, when he was rejected by the people um, to show that he was God's choice for priest, his rod blossomed all the way to the point of bearing fruit again, and it was almonds that he bore. And again, since there's no restrictions on going forward... Yeah. Um, God later will tell Jeremiah that he will provide a branch for David. He won't say an almond branch later, but you get a little bit of duality here, especially with your theme about the word. Mm -hmm. And so when showing this almond branch, potentially that there is something, someone coming, someone that even could be described as the word mm -hmm. that God is already preparing and has his eyes on that plan possibly. So an appointing and a selection and a, uh, a show of authority, the authority and God speaking through him, that certainly has to be considered, as you said, with the uncommonness of the use of almonds in the, uh, in the, uh, in the word. There is also this in the text, that this word almond turns out that in the Hebrew word, it's the same word as the word watching. Or to watch, watching over. Your King James will read hastening, and there's a, a sense in which that is uh, very appropriate in the same way, because um, with an almond tree as well, there's probably a number of things that this is intended to kind of cause us to think. If this is the first of the plants that's going to be flowering and coming out, well, then you see something that's probably going to happen very soon. You can expect... Uh, and that's why I would say there's proximity and, um, and certainty. The time perhaps is even already at hand, it's happening soon at least, but maybe even already at hand. So the, those are possibilities for what is being said there. But in any case, if God is watching over his word and there's a possible play on words in the Hebrew there, then yes, he certainly will perform it. So a certainty there as well. In Jeremiah 24, verses 6 and 7, I will set my eyes on them for good. Sounds a little bit like watching over his word to perform it. And I will bring them again to this land. I will build them up and not overthrow them. I will plant them and not uh, pluck them up. And so perhaps uh, something in that as well. And then, again, God shows him this in verse 13. 
a second time. What do you see, Jeremiah? A boiling pot, and it just happens to be he gains the understanding that is pouring out of the north. And the north always used, often used in the prophets as this omen and this symbol of God's judgment using other nations to correct and rebuke and destroy. What do you see, Jeremiah? A boiling pot from the north and God's message essentially is I'm pouring out all the nations and all the kingdoms, in fact, of the north against Judah. They're, they're going to break forth, as it were, like waters behind a broken dam. There's, there's, it's an unstoppable, overwhelming force, and I think that's the idea there is especially plain. Verse 16, and... As they pour out, I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. And so what we see there in verse 16, God's key contention with them. What is it? I'm not going to tell you. What's God's key contention with the people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what have what they gone after instead? Idols. Well, this is certain to be a very unpopular message, and as we read there right at the end, Jeremiah can expect to have a great deal of opposition, but God has promised to strengthen him. We won't read that again. God has promised to support him uh, personally um, in his faithfulness to give God's message. We need to continue. Maybe there's something you want to say about chapter 1 before we go on. Anything at all? <clears throat> Again, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah now in chapter 2. And if we want to summarize, because we won't get to all of chapter 2 today, we can begin to start noticing the, the key uh, ideas of chapter 2, which are that they walked after emptiness, this statement, and as a result of that, they became empty. And this is just utter foolishness, complete senselessness. And then they did something that's just never done and completely unnatural and... Um, never heard of. They abandoned their marriage. They forgot their forgot their spouse. They forgot anything about their uh, their wedding and their betrothals. And in doing this, they went out and loved many strangers. Verse two is a very interesting way of saying something. God tells Jeremiah, "Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem." He's going to be trying to reach them, even though he knows something about their hearts. Are these ears that are ready to hear the, the word of God? <laughs> or probably not, and God knows this about them. And at the same time, he removes every excuse if they fail to listen. Jeremiah has spoken, as it were, <laughs> into their very ears. And he, but even so, he continues, he continues to reach him. And I would say, does this say something about the character of God? This is a rhetorical question. Yes, it is, I think it says something about the character of God. If he's reaching out all day long, I've stretched out my hand to a stubborn and obstinate people. I've risen every day early, rising and sending my prophets, trying to reach them. God tried to reach them, but could not. This will do a pretty good job of helping us quickly skim chapter 2, this idea of God trying to reach them, even though he could not. He tried to reach them on the basis of his love for them and their love, their former love for him. Listen to verse 2. Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you 
This is, this is very fresh on my memory. I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. You're following after me in the wilderness, a love, a mutual love. And yet this was not enough to draw them back to him. It goes on to say in verses 6 through 7, recalling the time of the exodus. Who was the one that led you? Who was the one that delivered you? Who was the one that fed you all that time? God's providence and goodness, he brought you then into a fruitful land. God's bountiful goodness, and yet they're still turning away from him as though they've forgotten that entirely. He can try other things as well. He will have to give them warnings because he cares. And just like you will tell your kid, don't run out in the street. Don't touch that. It's hot. Don't go that way. It will ruin you. He will have to give them warnings. Verse 19, your own wickedness will correct you. You need to know that this way, the way you're going is not good. And your apostasies will reprove you. And if that's not enough, he can, he can use a proper sense of a fear of God. But they didn't have this anymore. Some, somewhere and somehow they had lost this. And now this is the end of verse 19. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And the dread of me is not in you. That's very evident. Otherwise... That it would have been a restraining influence, and, and, and it would have helped them. That didn't make any difference whatsoever. He tried to reach them on the basis of his previous deliverance. Listen to verse 20. For long ago, I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, uh, we will not serve. An evil yoke, and he was glad to break that, but they um, will not stay true to him and will not serve him. And then there's... Um, there are other forms of discipline. He says in verse 30, In vain I have struck your sons. They accepted no chastising. And so he tries discipline. He tries also a, a sense of wrath to show them that he's very angry over what they're doing. Verse 35, even this doesn't have, take any effect. Yet you said, I'm innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. He's not really going to be follow through with what the results of that anger would naturally lead to. When we come to chapter 3, he will try some physical uh, judgments in, in the form of drought and some other things as you are familiar with in the other prophets. All these motivators, and yet nothing could reach them. Very, very sad state of affairs. Back in verse 2, there's a broken marriage and what you find there is a telling of their past devotion and love. And this introduces this picture that will carry us through Jeremiah. That he keeps coming back to this idea that God was their husband and they were his bride. And that should mean something very significant in a binding and a love and a devotion and a clinging on. He remembers their past devotion and love. It turns into unfaithfulness and, in fact, even in harlotry, where he says in verse 20, Under every green tree you've lain down as a harlot. They're happy to go abroad, away from their own, and to roam. And uh, this should, yeah, that should read verse 31. Why do my people say, we're free to roam? 
And this is the idea they're not being true and faithful. They've forgotten things that nobody can or has possibly ever forgotten in the very memorable statements of verse 32. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Remember your wedding dress. You remember where you bought that and when you tried it on and when you wore that and all of those things and those, that wonderful occasion of your matrimony. All of these things, and yet they had forgotten them. They had left their own love and, and gone into adultery. How well, verse 33, you prepare your way to seek love. This is illegitimate love. This is um, adultery. Chapter 3, verse 1, God says, If a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another, will he still return to her? We'll come to that uh, next week. And, in fact, this will bring about the end of our study today. There are probably one to two to three minutes for your comments on what we've said so far about Jeremiah's message, perhaps about this figure of the... Uh, the, the marriage. What can we please add to this? Anything at all? We'll put a peg in it. We'll come back right here uh, next week. Thank you for your kind attention.